Just over 2,000 years ago, in the Middle East, a group of people were groaning under oppression, crying out in the midst of struggle, and asking a question, where is the one who was promised? This Messiah has been written about this, this king who's going to come and rescue us, where is he? <clears throat> Then he came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven once again after he had left his people with a promise that he'd come back. Then a generation went by, and another, and another, and another, and now we find ourselves 2,000 years later, and with every generation that's gone by since, we started to return to... The question that was being asked 2,000 years ago, that same one, where is the promise of his coming? When is he going to come? If you've been around this Advent, you know that we're using Advent 2019 as an opportunity here at North Sub to join the global church in reflecting on and preparing for not only the celebration of the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago in a stable, but also his second coming in the future in an hour that we don't know. So we're going to look at one more scripture text today in this series as we ask the Lord to help us to be ready when he comes back. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Sometimes the second coming of Jesus seems far off. I remember as a kid being disappointed on more than one occasion when I would spend all day pretty much praying, Jesus, will you come back today? And then he didn't. Any number of people, young and old, across the globe have been extremely disappointed over the years when they've bought into one of those uh, predictions of when Jesus was going to return and they sold everything that they had and they got all ready, this is going to be the day and then inevitably it's not the day. Because Jesus said we wouldn't know the time or the hour. Um, There are any number of reasons why any number of us might be asking the question, will he ever come? But while I've been that kid who was really expectantly longing for Jesus' return, so much so that I was disappointed when it didn't happen today, if I'm honest... I more often struggle now with the exact opposite problem. Namely, that I don't have a desperate hope for Jesus' return. Instead, I'm so settled in to this world, so comfortable here, that there are moments when I think I actually maybe would feel a little bit of annoyance at the idea of Jesus coming back right now because, because I've got <clears throat> career ambitions, I've got life plans, I've got 10-year goals, and I, I wanted to have a chance to live these things out, right? It, now, it might feel a little awkward to hear somebody say something like that out loud, but spoken with enough of you to know that many of us struggle sometimes with that same attitude. C.S. Lewis, 60 years ago, said it like this. He said, prosperity knits a man or a woman to the world, He feels that he's finding his place in it, finding his place in the world, while really it is finding its place in him. Really, 
the world is finding its place in him. And as the world does its best to find its place in each of our hearts, the longing that we once had for Jesus' return, the expectancy that maybe was there, starts to fade, doesn't it? Our scripture text today wants to help restore our expectant longing for Christ's return. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. There's Bibles in many of the chairs in front of you. Use a Bible app if you have one. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3. If you remember, if you were around this fall, we looked at 1 Peter. All fall, we walked through this letter that Peter wrote to these churches in what is now Turkey. We think that what the passage we're looking at today comes from the second letter that Peter wrote to those same people. So it would have been the late 60s AD that this was written, written from Rome. The occasion on which Paul's, I mean Peter's writing is that there are false teachers that have crept up in these churches and they are unsettling the Christians in the church uh, with lies. So in the first two chapters, he deals with these false teachers a lot. And in this chapter that we're going to look at, chapter 3, Peter's going to zero in on one particular vein of false teaching, namely the lies that they're telling about the return of Christ. As a result of these lies, the people in the church have been unsettled. And so Peter's going to address these lies head on, answer some of the questions that have been raised. So let me just kind of set the stage here on this text. There are two groups of people that are uh, in view in this text. They're both asking the same fundamental question. The question is our sermon title today, what is, where is the promise of his coming? But they're asking it in two different ways. So the second group that we're going to look at is asking, where is the promise of his coming? Because they, they're longing for his return. They're desiring it. And they're like, why hasn't it happened yet? The first group, though, is asking that question mockingly. They're not looking forward to his return. In fact, they don't think it's coming. They say, where's the promise of his return? Peter wants to, I mean, yeah, Peter wants to address both groups. And so he's going to do so using a contrast of uh, remembering and forgetting. Remembering and forgetting. So he's going to tell, he's going to talk about what the first group deliberately forgets. And then he's going to say what that second group must remember. And he's going to finish up with a very practical section of, okay, if all this is true, then how should we live? So we'll just take each of those three sections in turn. First, Verses 1 through 7, regarding those who don't desire the return of Christ. And uh, Peter's going to tell us here what the scoffers, he calls them, what they deliberately forget. So follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, the scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's a lot here in these first seven verses that uh, we're not going to have time to look at, but 
in these first seven verses, we see pictured an extremely common human tendency. Namely, that we humans are really, really good at tweaking our theology to justify living however we want to live. We're really, really good at tweaking what we believe, our theology, to justify living however we want to live. The classic example is the Christian husband who takes up a relationship with another woman who's not his wife. And then when you ask him, well, how do you reconcile that with the faith that you say you have? He starts to say, well, actually, now that you mention it, I've started to have some doubts. I've started to have some doubts about, you know, is Jesus really the only way to God? How can we really trust the scriptures anyway, right? What's happening there? What's happening is that doctrines are being changed to fit desires. His theology is being changed to allow his behavior. And though many of us are not actively trying to justify an affair at the moment, we all do the exact same thing in a thousand other minor ways from day to day, less obvious ways. But the bottom line for us as humans is that we want to live how we want to live. And it would be more convenient for us to live that way if we could construct a theology that allowed us to live that way, or at least to deconstruct the old theology that we had that rebuked the way that we want to live. That's exactly what these false teachers are doing here in this text. And what I'm I'm thinking of is the end of verse 3, that key phrase. Do you see it there? Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. What are they doing? They're following their own sinful desires. Following their own sinful desires. In other words, this isn't just an intellectual error they're making, that Jesus is coming back, but they thought he wasn't. It's deeper than that. They don't believe anymore that Jesus is coming back because it's born out of a drive to live how they want to live based on their own desires. And it's easier to live based on our own desires if we can set aside the idea that there's a judgment day coming. So take a look at how Peter summarizes their attitude there. Verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Ever since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, life goes on like it always did, and God doesn't intervene. It would be foolish to give in to the lie, then, that God will intervene in the future. But Peter says they're forgetting something. Verse 5, what are they forgetting? He says, actually, they deliberately forget it. They deliberately overlooked this fact. And what is the fact? The fact is that God has intervened in history many times. Peter could have picked any number of ways in which God has intervened in history, but he picks three. Do you see the three that he picks there, Uh, starting in verse 5? He talks about creation, when God intervened for the first time, right, and breathed things into existence, spoke things into existence. He created land by separating out the waters, and then by those same waters, he moves to his second intervention, uh, a flood that was was, uh, depicted in Genesis 7 by which he destroyed all living things on earth uh, besides those that were in Noah's ark. And then he says, thirdly, Peter says that there's a coming fire that God is storing up here in verse 7. Why does Peter pick these three? I think the application is pretty straightforward to the point he's making. Something like this, that 
it's reckless of the false teachers to think or assume that God won't intervene in the future by sending Jesus once again because he has a history of intervening, actually, in, 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 in human affairs. Um, and he has promised to do so again. So Peter wants his readers to see, in order to make the case the false teachers are making, they have to deliberately forget some things. Verse 5. They have to deliberately overlook it. Um, that's why it's a reminder, verse 1, that he says they should remember Verse 2, they should remember what has already been said. So let me just finish up this first section just by asking a question, just to crystallize the main point of what this is getting at. Here's a question for us to consider. If Jesus' return and the end of all things, if they were predicted so clearly, as clearly as Peter says that they were here in our text, then why are there so many who scoff at that? Right? Why do so many of our friends, people that we love, scoff at the idea that Jesus is going to come back one day? The answer, I think, takes us back to how we began this section, right? That when we want to justify our behavior, which we all do, we become really, really good at missing things. We're very prone to miss things, even the most clear things out of our desire to justify what we're doing. Our tendency is to follow our own sinful desires and to construct a theology around that that allows us to. So the question for you, for me, is what about us? Today, even this morning, are we living for God's desires or are we living for our own desires? It's an important question for all of us to ask, but I especially am burdened thinking about it for the 18 to 25 crowd this morning during a stage in life that often is a time for many of us of uh, deconstructing a faith that we were raised with, thinking twice about the beliefs that we took for granted when we were growing up. It's an important phase, and there's certainly for most of us many, many things in the faith that we were raised in that deserve to be deconstructed and that we should set aside. But for some of us who have had a chance to deconstruct our deconstructing phase now. Um, What becomes evident is that some of the most valuable deconstructing that we can do of our faith is the deconstructing of those aspects, those beliefs that we have, those doctrines that we picked up along the way that justify us living the way that we want to live. It's a tendency that we all have to do so, and we must be aware of it. Okay, the scoffers, though, they're not longing for Christ's return, and Peter's readers, they seem like they are. So let's move to that second section regarding those who do desire the return of Christ. Peter is now going to tell us what the faithful must remember. Would you follow along with me as I read verses 8 through 10? He says, But do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't know exactly how I slipped into this parenting habit. Um but I have. Whenever my two-year-old son wants to do something 
that I don't think he's ready to do yet, I keep finding myself just making up an arbitrary age at which he will be able to do that thing, right? So like electric toy train, I think you're going to break that. Oh, no, we can't play with that till you're five. I don't, why five? I'm not sure. Um, uh, what was the other one? Oh, oh Daddy, I want to push the lawnmower while it's on. Oh, son, you, you can't do that till you're 10. I don't, is 10 even the right age for that? I'm not sure. But... I think there are probably multiple problems with that parenting strategy that make that unhelpful for my son in, in, for, on further reflection. One of the main ones, though, is that his concept of time and mine are totally different, right? As evidenced by the fact that now almost every day he climbs into the front seat and says, am I 16 yet? Um, <laughs> if he knew how long it's going to be to wait 14 more years to drive a car... Like, it would break him, right? He, he doesn't have the capacity to handle what a 14-year wait feels like in reality. Um, but, but that's something like God's conception of time versus ours, isn't it? Right? <clears throat> and I think that's what Peter is saying here. He quotes Psalm 90 here in verse 8. And he says, you know, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, as one day. In other words, God is not limited to the perspective of one lifetime, like we are. Um, he feels free to use decades, centuries, even millennia sometimes to accomplish his purposes. Um, but the key point along those lines is in verse 9, though. The explanation of why he does that. Right, God doesn't just take millennia to do things for the sake of taking millennia to do things, according to verse 9. There's a reason for it. Um, it's not just that he doesn't care about us and our struggles. It's just that he just hasn't, it isn't just that he hasn't gotten around to it yet. It's actually just the opposite of that. It's not that he cares so little that makes him delay. It's that he cares so much. You see that in verse 9? The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, every day that Christ delays in returning, somebody else is coming to repentance. And, and what that means is that they're turning from their sin and turning to God. They're being snatched from the clutches of death and into life. If there's a reason for God to wait in sending Jesus again, that's a good reason. So Peter says, don't forget this, right? You see how he saw that, started that in verse 8? Don't overlook this fact. Um, he's not moving slowly. He's graciously delaying in hopes that a few last souls will be included in his family. But Peter knows our tendencies. He knows that some of us who think we're smart will be like, well, maybe then I'll delay. If he's waiting for me, I can kind of just bide my time, hang out. Um, I can buy some more time. Obviously, that way of thinking is way off, which is why Peter says what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And we saw that thief image in the last couple of weeks, didn't we? That we saw that it originated with the Lord Jesus. And because a thief is both unexpected and unwelcome. That's exactly how the Lord's return will be received on that day by those who delay too long in turning to him as they hear the roar and crackle of the fire that will consume apparently all the heavenly bodies, everything that's between God and ourselves so that we and everything that we've done on that day will be laid naked, bare before him, exposed totally in the light of day in plain sight. 
So Peter says, remember this. Don't forget it. Despite these people who are scoffing about it, what you originally taught about the end is correct. What's foretold will come to pass. And if there's, if there's a practical takeaway for me from this second section of our text, it's, maybe it's just an urgency to evangelize, honestly. That, <clears throat> that time is short, right? That when Christ returns, there will be no more opportunity to turn to him. And so our loved one's chance to turn to him is now. What if Christ has delayed up till now out of a desire to include someone that you love, someone that I love, someone that we care about, someone who would turn to Christ in faith if only we took the time to patiently, persistently share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Maybe another way to put it is, hey, verse 9 says that the Lord doesn't wish that any should perish, do we? If we don't, then we have a job to do here. We have a part to play in participating in the work that God wants to do to save people, invite them into his family. So we're getting now into talking about how to live, and we're doing so because there is no passage in the Bible that exists just to bolster our end times trivia. That that passage does not exist. Anytime that the Bible talks about the things that are coming at the end, it's always to inform the way that we live here and now. It's always connected to that. One scholar, D.A. Carson, said it like this, the test of eschatology is ethics. That's fancy wording. All that means is the test of what we believe will happen at the end is how we live now. Our eschatology is what we think is coming. Our ethics, how we live now. The test of our eschatology is our ethics, and nowhere is that more clear than in the third section of our text here. Let's move to verses 11 through 13, how we live in light of these reminders. Follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But... According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We said eschatology is your belief of what's coming at the end. Um, Kids have an eschatology at the dinner table, you know. Um, Their eschatology is what they believe will happen at the end of dinner, right? It's what they're looking forward to at the end. At the end, is there a treat coming? Like, is there dessert? That is going to be offered to me, right? And so many parents over the generations um, have used that to try to shape behavior, right? The hope is that kids' behavior at the dinner table, their eating at the dinner table will be shaped by what they believe is coming at the end, namely dessert or a treat. Um, it's no different for us as adults, though. We all shape our behavior based on what we believe will happen down the road. And so our lifestyles now say something about our eschatology, about what we believe. That's why Peter asks what he asks in verse 11. Well, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? There's a connection between the two. But we should pause there um, for a moment because probably someone's thinking it's uh, that okay, if Peter's saying that these things are going to be dissolved, like heavenly bodies, like maybe even planets and stars are going to be dissolved in some way, there's going to be some sort of fiery end to all of it. Um, Doesn't this justify 
those Christians who would say, well, forget about caring for the environment, right? Because it's all going to burn anyway, right? Isn't this like a justifying passage for that? So we're going to take a minute just to look at it because it does take a minute to walk through this. There's been a lot of ink spilled about this over the generations and the, the, the debate comes down to will the earth be replaced in the end or will it be transformed in the end? What does the Bible actually teach about that? This passage that we happen to be looking at today is one of those that is most quoted among those who believe that the earth will be replaced because our passage used words like dissolve, burn, melt, destroy. It certainly sounds like there's going to be nothing left, right? So this passage emphasizes discontinuity between this earth that we're living on now and the one to come and and when we live in the new heavens and the new earth with God forevermore. And so if it was just this passage that we had and this is all we had to go on, um, it would be hard to argue against those who say, forget about creation care. This, it's all going to burn. However, uh, there are a lot of other passages in the Bible and a lot of other passages that talk about the end. And many of those talk also, sometimes in the same passage, in, in more transforming language, using words like that the earth will be renewed or restored or that creation will be liberated from the bondage to decay that it's under, right? Romans 8 is one of those. Revelation 21 is one that, talks about both, but these passages emphasize a continuity, that there's going to be something continuous between this one and the one to come. It's going to be more of a renewal than a destruction. So these passages, what they're doing is they're reaching at the furthest edges of what we have language to describe about what's coming in the end, which is why it's hard to put into one crystallized statement. But what we can see when we look at all of them together, there's going to be some continuity and some discontinuity. There's going to be some transforming aspect and some replacing aspect of what's to come. And because it's going to be both and not just one, it is illegitimate for us as Christians. It is sinful for us as Christians not to steward the creation that God's given us, this, this earth that he's given us to live on well because of the continuity that's coming and his desire to set it free from the decay that it's been subjected to because of human sin. Let's leave that aside for a moment and get back to the summary that Peter has for the ways of life that are most critical for us to live during this time. He talks about holiness and godliness, doesn't he? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And in Actually, if the English translation allowed for it, the better translation would be holinesses and godlinesses. They're both plural. We can't do that in English. Um, But the point of the plural, I think, is to say that in all different aspects of our lives, we should be looking for a holy way to do it, a godly way to do it. There's all sorts of manifestations of holiness and godliness in our lives. And what's crazy is what he says in verse 12, that if we look to live that way, in a holy and godly way, we can actually speed up the timing of Christ's return. Do you see that? We might play a part in hastening the day. This is waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So for those of us who are yearning for Christ's return, we can actually do something about that according to this passage. And we know we're not misunderstanding Peter either because in a sermon that he gave back in Acts 3, if you look at it, he tells the people who are listening, hey, repent. Turn from your sins so that God will send Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to play a part in that? To know that you played a part in speeding up 
the day of Christ's return in this world that we're living in now that is ruled by corruption and division and abuse as that world gives way to a new world in which corruption and division and abuse have no home anymore because what's at home in that new world? Verse 13, righteousness. Righteousness will dwell there. That's where righteousness will live. We can speed up that day. So in summary, this third section, our ethics, the way that we live, are different than the false teachers that Peter pictures here, in part because our eschatology is different. What we believe is coming is different. Their eschatology was, don't worry, Jesus isn't coming back. And so the way that they live reflected that. What about yours? And what about mine? What does the way that we live reflect about our beliefs about the end and vice versa? Our big idea today is this. Let's hasten the day of Christ's return by living lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Let's hasten the day of Christ's return by living lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. I began this sermon by talking about two different sorts of people. Um, I said I've been both over the years. Uh, I've been the little kid who's eagerly waiting for Christ's return so much so that every day that went by that it didn't happen, I was disappointed. I've also been the person who is so comfortable here that honestly I might feel a little irritated if I was told Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Um, I want to finish this sermon just by addressing each of those groups. And actually, I'll address the second one first. Uh, so first, this, this is just a word for those who maybe this morning do feel comfortable here, that feel like earth is home. Don't necessarily feel any kind of strong desire for Jesus to return. Here's what I would say. I actually want to recommend that you pursue what you want to pursue in this world to the fullest extent. Go chase down those dreams that you think are going to satisfy you. Go try to grab whatever you think it is in your life that's going to fulfill you. The things that you love about this world, go get them with all your might. And when this world spits you out, or when it doesn't and you get all your dreams and they still leave you unsatisfied, as they inevitably will, remember this scripture text and what we talked about today. And take the opportunity then, at that point, to turn to Jesus, to the one who made you, to the one who loved you enough to die for you, and to the one who has loved you enough to delay up to this point to give you one more chance to turn to him. To that first group who is currently longing for the day of Christ's return, who feels disappointed that, that he hasn't come back yet, uh, might say this, remember that Jesus didn't come on that first Christmas just to purchase your ticket to heaven. That was an important part of what he did, of course, but he didn't just come on Christmas to purchase your ticket to heaven. He also came to live and die and rise again so that you could have the power today, this very day, in the present, to, to live in the way that he's called you to live, to play a role that he's called you to play. He's got a job for you to do, a, a part to play in the hastening of the coming of him once again. And so let's access his resurrection power as we participate in that. How do we do that? We do it by hitting our knees in prayer 
for those that we love. We, we do it by turning from our sin. We do it by reaching out to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and, and inviting them into the greatest story ever told. Um, let's be a people who use the resurrection power of Jesus to let ourselves be used to hasten the day of his return. Let's pray. Lord, there's excitement in the air during this season as Christmas is right around the corner and as we're with family again and as we're getting dressed up and decorating and getting ready to entertain and host people and be reunited with those we've been separated from for some time and from distance. Lord, there's joy in our hearts. Lord, we want to be a people whose joy doesn't just come from the things of this world, a people who aren't so comfortable here, so in love with the things of this world that we do not long for your return. We actually want to be people who long for your return above all else, who love you above all else, who, who, who have found that our deepest longings can only be satisfied by you. Or to the extent that we have slipped away from that, bring us back. Recreate that yearning that we once had in our hearts for you to come back once again. And Lord, please do hasten the day, speed it up, come quickly, so that we might be with you forever again. In Jesus' name, amen.